Father, we do ask that you bless this time in the study of your word, and we thank you that we can be here before these words that Isaiah wrote down uh, over 2,500 years ago. And we do pray that uh, as we read it, that there uh, is application to be made uh, uh, for us today. And Lord, I pray that um, in every way that we would uh, know that this is truth given to us, that it would encourage us, that it would bless us in every way. And uh, so, Lord, I just pray, touch the hearts of all of us as we go through this. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. As we've been in the book of Isaiah uh, over the last couple chapters, by way of just quick review, because it was a couple weeks ago when we were in Isaiah, but in chapters 9 and 10, again, Isaiah is indicting Judah and Jerusalem and also the house of Israel for their false worship, for their idol worship, and... and um, uh, disobedience and rebellion against the Lord. And in that, when he is indicting them, he is making prophecy that the Lord was going to use the Assyrians to come against the house of, of Israel, the 10 northern tribes. Matter of fact, in chapter 8, uh, the prophecies are, were to be written on a scroll, as Isaiah was told, that it's going to be the Assyrians, like the major rivers, the great rivers of Assyria, is overflowing. They're going to flow into Israel and eventually into Judah. But we see as the prophecies are given that then Isaiah would give a glimmer of light. He would give a message of hope. Uh, in the darkness, there's going to be a light, as he writes in chapter 9, speaking of the ministry of the Messiah. And for unto us a child is born, and unto us a son is given. And the government will be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. So one of the things that Isaiah does in this, and we'll see that as we go into chapter 11, that he continues in this, this pattern that he gives to them. Then he goes right back and he begins to speak about the arrogance of Samaria, that is the 10 northern tribes, how they think that they're going to rebuild bigger and better without you know, returning to the Lord, even though this judgment is being proclaimed. And, and they're not giving heed to what the word of the Lord given to them uh, and the warning given to them is. And in their arrogance, the Lord is going to judge them and in their false worship. But then as we went through chapter 10 last time, and remember that he continues in that prophecy indicting, uh, particularly the house of Israel in these chapters here. He says, what are you going to do in the day of punishment and in the desolation which will come from afar? To whom will you flee for help and where will you leave your glory? And that's something that, that we can apply to our own lives. You know, where are we going to turn to in our hour of need? And you see, it tells a whole lot about where we're at spiritually. When we have that hour need, what are we turning to? What are we trusting in? What are we looking to? Are we really looking to our Lord? Are we looking to the word of the Lord and trusting in him and desiring to, to walk in that obedience and how he tells us to live and respond to every area of our lives and every situation that comes into our lives? And you see here he's saying to them that these idols that you are worshiping in this false religion is not going to help you. And then we see that Isaiah in this chapter from chapter 10, verses 5 through uh, verse 19, 
begins to talk about how God was going to bring judgment to the Assyrians. And, and because of their pride, he was going to deal with them. So not only judgment, he's using Assyria, that mighty empire at this time that's flexing its muscles, beginning to overflow its banks and take over nations and will come into the house of, of Israel in 722 BC and begin to take them off into captivity. He uses Assyria as the instrument of judgment but he's going to deal with Assyria as well in their pride. And then he says that Isaiah in that pattern gives the message of hope. There's going to be a remnant that's going to return and the Lord is going to uh, help Israel. The Lord is not going to forsake Israel. Let's go to chapter 11 now. And there shall come forth a rod from the stem of Jesse and from a branch shall grow out of its roots. So the stem of Jesse, Jesse was, of course, as most of you know, the father of David. And the people of God was, uh, as we saw in chapter 10, going to be cut down in judgment particularly as we saw in verses 28 through uh, 34 of the previous chapter. Uh, the Assyrians are going to march. Um, they're going to cut down the house of Israel, Samaria, uh, because of their pride. Uh, it's like a mighty tree that is being cut down. But then out of that, as we move into chapter 11, all of a sudden, speaking of this stem of Jesse, Jesse being the father of David, we know that the Messiah would come from the line of David, right? Remember when David wanted to build a temple, the Lord said, David, you're not going to build that temple because your hands are bloodied. Your son's going to build the temple, but David, I'm going to build you a temple. I'm going to build you a house. And, and upon your throne is going to be established forever. It's going to come Messiah. So everyone knew, reading the Old Testament, as you go to the gospel narratives, that Messiah would come from the line of David. And that's why you see that term, uh, son of David, uh, those who would call out to Jesus as a messianic term. So this is a messianic prophecy pointing to Jesus that shall come forth from the stem of Jesse, a branch shall grow out of its roots. In other words, as um, the people of God were going to be cut down in judgment, left like a stump, and during the reign of David, as we know, reading the books of Second uh, Samuel and then also of First Chronicles, we know that during the reign of David and then also during the reign of his son Solomon, that Israel was united and it was very powerful, wasn't it? I mean, David defeated his enemies all around him. And we also know that Solomon, during his 40 years of reigning, that the nation was experiencing its greatest power, its greatest prosperity. Uh, he built the temple. The glory of the Lord manifested uh, himself uh, in such a, a glorious, magnificent way that the priests could minister when they dedicated the temple. It was just a glorious time in the nation. And after that, we see that they would soon decline. And after the reign of Solomon, then the nation would split uh, as the 10 northern tribes broke away. And they were involved in idol worship uh, at that point, clear till they would go into captivity. But here we see that um, what's going to happen, even though they were going to be left desolate, uh, desolate, God brings life from that which is dead. And that applies to you and to me, doesn't it? Because when you go to Ephesians chapter 2, Ephesians chapter 2 tells us that we are dead spiritually because of sin. Because of sin, that the Bible declares that we are dead spiritually. 
And that's why it is Jesus that said to Nicodemus in John chapter 3 that if you want to see the kingdom of God, Nicodemus, or any of us, you must be born again. Born again by the Spirit of God. In Ephesians chapter 2 goes on to say, but he has made us alive through his great love towards us and his mercy and grace. And because of what Jesus Christ has done on the cross, as we covered on Sunday, dying on that cross for you and for me, and he cried out, it is finished. I've done the work and I've paid the price. And he made atonement for our sins. And also, as we have forgiveness of sin, washed clean by the blood of Jesus Christ, as we come to him in faith and call out to him, then we are born again by the Spirit of God and life comes to us. And I don't know about you, but I know, and I've said this before, that when I first came to Christ, I didn't realize how dead I was inside. And I really felt alive for the very first time. All of a sudden, it's just like everything was different for me. The rotten attitudes and the, you know, uh, words that came out of my mouth, that, that all changed. And the Lord's still doing the work in me. Please don't misunderstand me. But I really felt alive. And I didn't realize how dead I was inside. And many of you have that same testimony. So he's the one out of the deadness of our lives brings life and we can become fruitful again. And then in verse 2, the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, and the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. Now verse 2 is an interesting verse because the branch is full of life now. And then the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. And then you have uh, the spirit of wisdom and understanding and counsel, might, knowledge, and the fear of the Lord. It is interesting that when you go to the book of Revelation, when John starts to write the apocalypse from the island of Patmos, John to the seven churches which are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, that's speaking of our Lord, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne. Then when you go to Revelation chapter 4, I'll read it to you again. John is caught up in the heaven and he describes that heavenly scene. And in that he says that, and from the throne proceeded lightnings and thunderings and voices and seven lamps of fire were burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. So people read that in chapter 1 verse 4 and chapter 4 verse 5 and they, they think, what are the seven spirits of God uh, are there seven Holy Spirits? No, there is not seven Holy Spirits. There's only one Holy Spirit. Uh, there's only one God in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That's the Trinity. But in the seven spirits before the throne, as it's interesting in chapter 4 of the book of Revelation, that John here describing it, he, he writes, in, the seven lamps of fire were burning before the throne. You remember in the Old Testament, as we make the connections, that in the tabernacle, and as we go through the book of Hebrews, what we're going to learn, that the pattern of the tabernacle that Moses was told to, to make is a replica of the heavenly tabernacle. And so Moses didn't say, well, you know, I think that this would be good to have a holy place and the most holy place. No, God told him, gave him the pattern that followed the heavenly tabernacle. And there in the heavenly tabernacle that, that uh, is in heaven, we'll look at that. But in the earthly tabernacle, Moses was told to make the, the shoe bread table, right? 
with the 12 loaves of bread that the priests would change every Sabbath. And it represented the 12 tribes of Israel, but also it represented that Jesus is the bread of life. You recall that it was Jesus that said to the religious leaders that you search the scriptures and in them you think you have eternal life, but these are they which speak of me. In other words, that the Old Testament, as we look at uh, the prophecies, as we look at the tabernacle, as we look at the sacrifices, it all points to, it speaks of, it's all fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And as we look at the tabernacle, of course, John chapter 1 verse 14 says that he tabernacled among us. The word became flesh. I like what the King James says, and tabernacled among us. And in that tabernacle in the wilderness, it does speak of Christ. There's only one door. Jesus is the door to go into the tabernacle and to the presence of the Lord. We know that as uh, you went into the holy place there, that there was a shewbread table, and it represented the 12 tribes of Israel, and then also that Jesus is the bread of life. But then there was seven-branch menorah, and I believe that that's a reference not only to Jesus, as being the light of the world, but the Holy Spirit, because the seven-branch menorah had bowls that were full of oil, and oil represents the Holy Spirit. So that's what it reminds me of here in, in verse 5 of chapter 4 of Revelation. The seven lamps of fire were burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. So speaking of the Holy Spirit, but I believe that it's a reference to the sevenfold ministry of the Holy Spirit, which is told to us here in Isaiah chapter 11, verse 2. All right. I know I kind of made the connections there, but I hope you followed it. So if anybody comes to you and says, what are the seven spirits? Of, you know, there are seven Holy Spirits. No, it's a sevenfold ministry of the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of the Lord, number one. There are many false spirits or deceiving spirits that are out there, and we need to be careful, folks. There's a lot of weirdness that's out there today. And you recall that John, at the end of his life, when he was the last living apostle, that he would say in chapter 4 of his first epistle that test the spirits to see if they are God because many false prophets have gone out into the world. And he goes on and he speaks to the church there. It's a general epistle. It was for all the Christians because false doctrine had already come into the early church in the first century there. We know that Gnosticism had infiltrated the church and the Gnostics were saying that Jesus didn't come in the flesh. It only looked like he came in the flesh and he didn't bodily resurrect from the grave. And we know that John, as he starts out his epistle saying that the word of life that we handled and touch, yes, he came in the flesh. We touched him. We handled him. And if you confess that Jesus Christ came in the flesh, then they are of God. But if not, they are false. So John is saying, listen, you need to test the, the spirits to see if they are true or not. And that's what you and I are to do because there are false messiahs that are out there, false spirits that are out there that will deceive you and me, and we need to filter it through the word of God. We need to test the spirits. And I would encourage you in that because there's a lot of things in the church that come blowing through the church that are very popular, um, that end up being in the church, uh, you know, year after year after year that are not the things of God. They are not the way of the Lord and they deceive a lot of people and people will look at it and they'll get all excited about it. Uh, there may be manifestations of, of whatever, but we need to always use the word of God as our final authority. Do we understand that? And that's why it's important that we know the word of God because if you don't know the word of God, you're going to get deceived in the day in which we're living in. 
There's just too much deception that's out there. So the exhortation, the spirit of the Lord, there are false spirits and deceiving spirits that are out there. Second of all, the spirit of wisdom. The spirit of wisdom, Jesus does not just have wisdom, he is wisdom. Solomon, as we went through the book of of Proverbs, had the wisdom of God. Jesus is the wisdom of God. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 30, Jesus becomes for us wisdom from God. And and I know you feel this way, but I am so thankful to have wisdom from the Word of God. And remember that wisdom is not just knowing the Word of God, but it's applying it in your life. You see, I've known people that they know the Bible, they know it well, but they don't apply it to their lives. And true wisdom is taking the Word of God and how we are to live in every area of our lives, how we are to walk with him, and then we are to apply it in our lives. And, and I'm so thankful that we have the truth that is given to us in godly wisdom. There's a difference between godly wisdom and worldly wisdom. And godly wisdom is what you and I are to apply in our lives and walk in. And we don't have to walk as fools or in deception or in darkness. So second of all, the spirit of wisdom. Then the spirit of understanding, as Isaiah writes, he understands all things and he understands us perfectly. And no one else can do that. You know, if, if for those of you who've been married for long periods of time and we have people uh, in the fellowship that have been married uh, for 50 years or more. And I, I think that's so wonderful. There was a couple that was here um, not long ago that they came out and he said, my wife and I have been married for 70 years. And I thought, how wonderful. He was 90, she was 88. And he says, I love her uh, like the day when we got married. And they were just the sweetest couple. I wanted to take them home. And, um, but 70 years. And I think, what a tremendous blessing and a testimony. And I'm sure that uh, being married for somebody for 70 years, or whether it's 50 years or 30 years, um, you know that person pretty well. But we can't know everything about that person. We don't even know our own hearts the way that the Lord knows every detail. He understands us. And and that's good news. Because I've talked to many people over the years that have sat in my office and they've been grieving or they've gone through a loss or difficulty or they're facing um, circumstances um, that are hard. And they will say, no one understands or you can't understand, Pastor Jeff. And I say, I know I can't understand. But I know that we can go to the one who does understand. And he's the one that understands you and you're not alone. He knows everything about you. He knows more about you than you do about your own self. And I like what Hebrews declares in in chapter 4 in verses uh, 15 and 16. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. I'm so thankful that he sympathizes with us and that we can come to him in our time of need and in our time of weakness to receive grace and help. And he understands us. And he has the spirit of understanding uh, in the situation that we find ourselves in. And then fourthly, the spirit of counsel. And of course, I read to you from chapter 9, again, the fourfold name of uh, the one who unto us a son is given, unto us a child is born. 
and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor. And we are to go to him for counsel. You see, what the trend is in the church, and what I'm hearing is I talk to other, uh, you know, uh, ministry leaders or other ministries, and I'm not trying to be critical, but what I'm hearing is a lot of churches are outsourcing their counseling, that they are sending them, you know, away from the church to go to counselors. And I know there, there are probably some good counselors out there, but, you know, I think the word of God is free. And, and that's the counsel that we're to give. And, and one of the things that I want to do here is Calvary Chapel Bible College has a course where you can be trained in biblical counseling to have people start going through that to be able to counsel others through the Word of God. The Word of God is true, and it is sufficient for us today. And I hope that you understand that. You see, sometimes I hear... Uh, ministers and ministries that will say, well, we'll give the word of God. And if that doesn't work, almost like the word of God is not sufficient for us. And what I hope and pray is that as we talk with others, that as we give them counsel and there is safety in the multitude of counsel, the implication there in Proverbs, it is, it is godly counsel that we give godly counsel that comes from the word of God that has the answers for every area of our lives. Do we understand that? And Paul says in Colossians chapter 2 that you're going to be cheated if you turn to the world's philosophy, traditions of men, and that which is not of Christ. So you give godly counsel from the word of God. He's the wonderful counselor. And as we do that, it's going to touch the hearts of people and giving them truth. That's why we need God's word. It brings counsel to every part of our lives. Fifthly, here Isaiah writes the spirit of might. He has proven to, to work in our lives. He is, again, the fourfold name, mighty God. And he is the creator of everything. And there's nothing too difficult or too hard for him not to work in. He's the mighty God. And he is infinitely greater than our own might. We might think that we're pretty strong and pretty together in some areas of our lives. And I've mentioned this before, but oftentimes where we think we're really strong in an area of life is where we can fail in. And the reason that we fail in that is because we're trying to trust in our own strength. We're trying to trust in our own togetherness. And if we ever get to that point, you can be sure that we're going to end up failing in that area. We can think, well, I got it together in, you know, when it comes to my marriage, when it comes to raising my kids, when it comes financially. No, we need to give every area of our lives to the Lord and depend on him. It's kind of like Peter that we saw. Remember Peter denying the Lord? There in Caiaphas' courtyard, he denied the Lord three times. And it was Peter that was boasting, saying, I'll never leave you, Lord. These other guys may run away from you, but not me. And Peter was a brave individual. He's the one that walked on water. He's the one that pour, pulled out the sword and cut off the ear of Malchus, uh, the servant of the high priest there in the garden. But when it came to that moment where they're saying, the servant girl, you, you know him. You have a Galilean accent. You're one of them. He folded because he was relying on his own strength. It's not by power nor by might, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. And we need to always be relying on him, the spirit of might. 
He is mighty God. And you might be in a situation this Christmas or as you end the year, wondering how this is going to work out in the new year. He is mighty God, and he is able to work in whatever it is that you are facing. The spirit of knowledge is number six. In him, Colossians 2, Two again declares is hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Listen, I want you to know this. God is smarter than any man that is alive. There are those who come along, the critics of the scripture, scholars, so-called scholars, those who come along to try to dismiss the word of God. Oh, that's, that's not true what the word of God says. I don't care how smart, how many degrees somebody has, how intelligent somebody is, my God is infinitely a whole lot smarter than they are. Okay, will you remember that? And there are those who will come along that will try to seem like they're smarter than God and dismiss what the Word of God has to say. Oh, creation really didn't happen. You know, evolution happened. Things evolved. You know, and there are denominations and there are ministries and, and even in Bible colleges and seminaries that are dismissing the first 11 chapters of Genesis. Matter of fact, I got a call on the radio on that not long ago and then got another email from somebody else wondering, is the first 11 chapters of Genesis inspired by God? Is it true? Uh, is it true historically? Yes, it's true historically because Jesus gave his stamp of approval on Genesis chapter 2 when they came and they asked him about marriage and divorce and can you give a certificate of divorce, those religious leaders were asking. And Jesus said, have you not read that in the beginning he made them male and female and a man shall leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife and the two shall become one flesh? Genesis chapter 2. Jesus put his stamp of approval on it. And Jesus is a whole lot smarter than so-called critics of the scripture or scholars who dismiss the first 11 chapters of Genesis. He says, in the beginning, he made a male and female. He made Adam and Eve. And then he joined him together in that definition of marriage. He said, just as, you know, uh, he, he speaks of, of the Noah and the flood and as the last days, the coming of the Son of Man shall be like in the days of Noah. He's there putting his stamp of approval on Genesis chapter 11. Listen, let nobody snow you and try to confuse you by telling you that the scriptures is not true and that we need to dismiss parts of the scripture because it's just fable or it's fantasy or it's not true, whatever the case may be. All scripture is inspired by God from Genesis 1-1 to Revelation 22-21. And it is God-breathed. That's what it means, inspired. And it is profitable for us. And we believe every bit of it. And I believe in the creation story. I believe that there is a worldwide flood. Because Jesus said that there was. I believe that, that in the miracles that are given to us in the Bible, I believe that Jonah was swallowed by a large fish and then barfed out on, you know, so he can go to Nineveh. You know, when you really think about it, he's in the belly of a whale for three days, and finally he prays, you know. And I just, just, you know, I was reading Jonah just the other day in my devotions going through the Minor Prophets. That's why I'm thinking about it. And I'm thinking, what a stubborn guy. Three days, <laughs> I'm not going to go to Nineveh. And then finally it says after three days that he would um, cry out to the Lord, and the whale said, blah. Better go out that way than the other way, I suppose. 
He goes to Nineveh, and think about this. He would be bleach white, right, from the gastronomical juices, and his hair would be all gone. They probably thought he was a ghost, and he's going, judgment in 40 days, and they all repented. But I believe it happened because Jesus said, you want a sign, guys? You religious leaders that are asking for a sign, just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a large fish, so shall the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Here's a sign to you for not only this generation, but for every generation, my resurrection. And we're going to talk about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We're going to see it once again in Luke chapter 24, an incredible, incredible story that I love to, to read over and over and over again because that's where our hope is. That's where the living hope comes from, as Peter writes, is through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Don't let anyone deceive you in saying that the Scriptures is not true. The Scriptures is true. And one of the ways that we know that God's Word is true is because when you really think about the canon of Scripture, you know, 40 authors written over 1,500 years, you know, time span, over three continents, all the authors, different backgrounds. You know, Amos was a fig picker. Moses was a shepherd. Uh, David, you know, was a sweet psalmist. Uh, he was a shepherd as well. Uh, you, you see that, uh, you know, all the different backgrounds, and yet there's one harmonious message that is in the scriptures all the way from Genesis to Revelation. Peter was a fisherman, so was John. You know, Daniel was an administrator. It's just absolutely incredible. And then you see the prophecy that the Bible dares to prophesy. And we're going to be going over a lot of this over the next weeks and months as we go through the books of the prophets. And absolute great detail given to us in every one of the prophecies, the near prophecies have been fulfilled. And the Bible dares says that, that God, when he speaks, is 100% accurate, not 90%. Not 80%. You see, we're coming to that time of the year. In a few weeks, we're going to be hearing about predictions into the new year economically, socially, you know, politically, you know, all the uh, predictions that come out. If, if any of them are halfway right, they're doing pretty well. The Bible is 100% true. And I know for me, when I was searching to see if the scriptures were really true, why should I believe this book? Because it is so unique, like any other book, that dares to prophesy. And as we look at the future fulfillments, we can bank on the truth of God's word and stand on it, that it will come to pass. Remember, I told you, keep in mind, in Isaiah, in chapter 2, it shall come to pass in the latter days. It will come to pass, every single bit of it. So... We believe the Bible, we stand on the Word of God, and we are to have the knowledge of the Lord as well and um, in everything that is in the Word of God. God is smarter than any man that comes along and tries to get you to doubt the Word of God. And then number seven, the spirit of the fear of the Lord. Uh, just being willing to submit to uh, Him and reverence Him and walk with Him just as Jesus was submitted to the Father. So um, the sevenfold ministry of the Holy Spirit, in verse three, His delight is in the fear of the Lord, and He shall not judge by the sight of His eyes, nor dis, uh, decide by the hearing of His ears. Listen, verse three, I might want to underline it or put a little note in there. 
what we're going to read here as we go into verses 4 and 5, that Jesus is true and he is faithful and his judgments are in righteousness. Way that we often judge is in verse 3. Here it says that he shall not judge by the sight of his eyes nor decide by the hearing of his ears. Oftentimes we can do that. We judge by the sight of the eyes, the gossip that we hear, and we need to be careful of that. We need to judge by the word of God. And you see, one of the things that we can face that is very frustrating, we live in a culture that we love to hear the latest juicy news and gossip, and we love to get on social media. And one of the things that's frustrating for any of us, and for me, is when somebody begins to plaster stuff all over social media, and you're going, what is this all about? They get angry at me. They get angry at the ministry. And they start, you know, writing all over Facebook or social media. And, and you're going, what is this about? Why don't they call? Why don't they try to get some clarity and understanding? And you guys need to be wise in that, all of us in that. That there's one side to that story, but not everything is being told to you. So in the news that we hear and the things that are out there, we need to make sure that uh, we are hearing you know, the truth of what is going on, be wise and discerning in what is going on. And, um, but people love to just hear things and in the sight of the eyes judge things. But in verse four, with righteousness, he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. He shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips, he shall slay the wicked. And righteousness shall be the belt of his loins and faithfulness, the belt of his waist. It reminds me again, I think Isaiah here making reference um, and speaking of what we read about in Revelation chapter 19. In chapter 19, heaven is going to declare that righteous and true are your decisions, O Lord. Will you remember that? Righteous and true are your decisions, your judgments, O Lord. That is what we are going to declare in heaven. And maybe you're going through something that you're thinking, Lord, why is this happening to me? Or why are you allowing this? Or why did this happen this way? We are not going to get to heaven and say, Lord, you weren't fair. Or you made a wrong decision in this. We are all together going to say, righteous and true are your judgments, O Lord. And then when he comes back, he is called faithful and true. And in righteousness, he judges and makes war. And the armies in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, follow him on white horses. That's you and me. We're going to come back with them. And out of his mouth goes a sharp sword that he should strike the nations. And that's what he's talking about. He's going to come. He's going to slay the wicked. And righteousness shall be his belt. And faithfulness, the belt of his ways. He's going to rule the nations with a rod of iron as he establishes his kingdom. And speaking of his kingdom, verse 6, the wolf also shall dwell with the lamb. The leopard shall lie down down with the young goat, the calf and the young lion and the fatling together. The little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze. Their young ones shall lie down together. The lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play by the cobra's hole. And the weaned child shall put his hand in a viper's den. And they shall not hurt nor destroy 
in all my holy mountain, for there shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. We'll read somewhere else in Isaiah that he'll say that righteousness will cover the earth as waters cover the sea. What a glorious time this is going to be. A child is going to play with the cobra, put his hand in you know, the uh, mouth of a viper. It's not going to hurt him. What a glorious, glorious time this is going to be. And in verse 10, and in that day there shall be a root of Jesse who shall stand as a banner to the people for the Gentiles shall seek him and his resting place shall be glorious. And it shall come to pass in that day that the Lord shall set his hand again the second time to recover the remnant of his people who are left from Assyria and Egypt, from Pathros and Cush, from Elam. We'll read actually maybe on New Year's Eve a prophecy of the latter days of Elam. So stay tuned. All right. I think you'll find it to be fascinating there from the book of Jeremiah. Shinar, from Hamath and from the islands of the sea. He will set up a banner for the nations. He will assemble the outcasts of Israel, gather together the disperse of Judah from the four corners of the earth. We do know from Matthew chapter 24 verse 31 that as we see a partial fulfillment of the Jews coming back into the land that the full um, and complete fulfillment of this is when he comes back in great power and glory and every eye shall see him and then the angels will collect the elect from the four corners of the earth. They will collect the Jews and they will come back into the land as he establishes the nation. In verse 13, and the envy of Ephraim shall depart and the adversaries of Judah shall be cut off. Ephraim shall not envy Judah and Judah shall not harass Ephraim, but they shall fly down upon the shoulder of the Philistines towards the west. And together they shall plunder the people of the east. They shall lay their hand on Edom and Moab, and the people of Ammon shall obey them. And the Lord will utterly destroy the tongue of the sea of Egypt. With his mighty wind, he will shake his fist over the river and strike it into seven streams and make men cross over dry shod. And there will be a highway from the remnant of his people who will be left from Assyria as it was for Israel in the day they came up from the land of Egypt. And so God will reign over the nations. They will come to Jerusalem. We know that Zechariah chapter 14 tells us that during the millennium reign that the nations will come to Jerusalem to celebrate the feast of Passover or the feast of tabernacle, excuse me. And then again, Psalm chapter two says he will rule with a rod of iron. And then chapter 12, just a couple of minutes and we'll be done. And in that day you will say, O Lord, I will praise you. Though you were angry with me, your anger is turned away and you comfort me. If you're here in Christ, you might think, is the Lord angry at me because I'm not what I could be or should be? He is the propitiation for our sins. He made atonement for our sins. And he is the propitiation. Propitiation means the satisfaction. The satisfaction, the, the righteous requirement from a righteous God, Jesus is the satisfaction, his death on the cross for sinful humanity. He's not mad at you. Now, he will chasten you if you're walking in disobedience, but he does it, why? Because he loves you. Just as a parent, as we discipline our children, we do it because we love them. But I talk to Christians at times that think, well, I, I fail in this area or I struggle in this area. God must be so disgusted with me and he must be so mad at me. He's not angry with you. But he is calling you to repent and to turn to him and to trust in him and to rely on him.
but he loves you. And if you're experiencing the chastening of the Lord, it's because of his love for you. So here he says that though you were angry with me, your angry, anger is turned away and you comfort me. Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and not be afraid. For Yah, the Lord, is my strength and song. He has also has become my salvation. He is our salvation and strength and song. So can I ask you a question tonight as we close? What's your song? Remember some of us, Jim Croce, the old Jim Croce song, I Have a Name. The second verse is, I Have a Song. So what's your song in life? What is it that you like to sing? What are the praises coming from your heart? What is your song in life? Is it towards the Lord? Or is it song towards things of the world and carnality and, and those kinds of things? And therefore, with joy, you will draw water from the wells of salvation. I love how articulate Isaiah is. He says, listen, joy, you're going to come from as you draw from the living waters. We talk about joy during Christmas and peace and goodwill. It comes from him and drawing from him. As Jesus would say, come to me, all of you who thirst. And come drink of me, and out of your innermost will flow torrents of living water, and joy will flow from you as well. You want to be joyful this Christmas? Draw from him. Go to him. Know him. Grow in your relationship with him, in closeness with him, and you'll have joy coming from you. And in that day you will say, praise the Lord, call upon his name, and declare his deeds among the peoples. Make mention that his name is exalted. Sing to the Lord, for he has done excellent things. He has, hasn't he? He's done excellent things. He is faithful and true. And as I come to the end of the year, I look back at, Lord, you've been faithful in my life and in my family and in the ministry here. But I don't know about you, but I can get just a little bit anxious at times thinking about the new year. Lord, what's going to happen, you know, uh, in this area of my life? What's going to happen with the ministry? It, it becomes overwhelming, um, you know, all these things. And the Lord always reminds me that he's faithful, that I look at his faithfulness in the past of my life, and I can look to his faithfulness in the future. And maybe you go through something similar. You wonder what's going to happen with my kids or business or health or whatever. And we can look to his faithfulness because he is faithful. And he has done excellent things and continues to want to do that. And this is known in all the air. Cry out and shout, O inhabitants of Zion. For great is the Holy One of Israel in your midst. So, Father, we thank you so much for these verses here. And I thank you that we can meditate and read them and make application. And, Father, I thank you that you are the one it does ex excellent things in our lives. And Father, I pray that this Christmas season, as um, we speak of joy and peace and goodwill, that we know it comes from you. And we know that you desire to, um, Lord, for us to rest in that. Father, you are truly the one that we get to look back now at the one who came. Stem out of Jesse, the son of David, the greater than David, that came to this world that we might have peace with God through the blood of Jesus Christ. But Lord, I pray that we would have the peace of God. 
So Father, thank you that we can be here tonight. And I pray if there are those that are here thinking I'm alone or no one understands that they would know that you, that you have the spirit of understanding, the Holy Spirit in our hearts ministering to us. We're not alone. The spirit of truth, he is called. Establish us in your truth and in your comfort. You're the one that's mighty to work in our situations, to give us counsel, because how we need your counsel. So Lord, I thank you that we can turn to you because you care for us and to draw from you the living waters. Lord, I pray that you'd bless everyone here as we go our way. Bless the rest of our week, whatever it is that we face. We have the certainty that you're with us and you love us. And Lord, show yourself strong on our behalf. Help us be a light to others. Lord, I thank you for the body of Christ. I thank you for tonight. Take us all home safely. In Jesus' name. Amen.